3: you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell,
4: I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore.
5: We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the
2: battle, but to win the war. i
4: we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something.
6: A whole parade of what man's carved out for himself so after centuries of fighting
2: you're out of order you're out of order the whole trial is out of order you
4: have meddled with the primal forces of nature and you
2: will atone hey there this is your mad prophet of the airwaves, and welcome to Radio Free Canada, news notes and opinions from the underground for Wednesday, July 6th, in the year of our Lord, 2022. All eyes should be on the Netherlands right now. Now, I don't say this with any joy, but that country needs to rise up and rid themselves of their government. I'm not sure if revolution is the right word. Certainly A peaceful revolution is needed. Although the Dutch police are not being peaceful, they're firing live ammunition at unarmed farmers who are engaged in a nationwide protest. In fact, the police narrowly missed hitting a 16-year-old boy. That boy was then later placed under arrest. So the Dutch government has lost its collective mind. They've gone rogue. The, far- the uh, farmers are fighting for their future and their survival. Their government is trying to force them to drastically reduce emissions to meet carbon emission standards. Zero carbon. This is, of course, a suicide mission. The Dutch government is obviously being controlled by the globalists and the UN and the World Economic Forum. Sky News host Rowan Dean in Australia says the Netherlands appears to be sliding into dictatorship under Prime Minister Mark Root, or Rudy. Dean says currently the Dutch government is embarked upon insane efforts to slash greenhouse gases and reduce the amount of nitrogen ammonia in the soil by 30 to 70 percent by 2030. The Netherlands House of Representatives has released a statement, statement which said, the honest message is that not all farmers will continue in business. Those who do will have to farm differently. So my prayers and uh, well wishes go out to the Dutch farmers and all who support them. I hope the Dutch government does the right thing and resigns. They are a pariah. And any government that tries to pull the same insanity on their people should face the same kind of resistance. Enough is enough with this climate change insanity. It's not about the climate, it's about control. It's a death cult, and it must end. Our horribly inept and uh, corrupt federal government, led by a man who failed grade 7, dropped out of college, became a ski instructor, and then later a drama teacher, he hasn't taken aim at farmers. Yet. Not directly. They're too busy trying to destroy our oil and gas industry. And in the process, of course... They're causing tremendous financial hardship on millions of Canadians. And what does the deputy dum-dum, Chrystia Freeland, have to say for herself? As we confront the climate crisis. Oops, that's the wrong one. Sorry. Never mind. Basically, she's saying the high energy prices are a reminder how important it is to, to uh, transition to green technology transition to green energy. You're responsible for the high prices of gasoline. You utter in complete spoon. Again, a classic example of creating the disease in order to offer the cure. Except the cure, transitioning to green energy, is not a cure. It's worse than the disease. Let me see if I can find that clip very quickly for you. It's important. All right, here we go.
7: From my perspective, this price increase in in fuel costs is a reminder of why climate action is so important and why as a country we have to work Even harder and move even faster towards a green economy. It's an insurance policy against higher energy prices.
2: You're responsible for the high energy prices. This is the best that we can do. She's the deputy prime minister. This is the best we can do. Uh, The uh, homicidal psychopath who murdered seven people on July 4th in the Highland Park neighborhood of Chicago, has been identified as a member of Antifa and also a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. This is the largest and fastest-growing socialist organization in the United States. So in other words, we can expect the corrupt, lamestream media to memory hole this tragedy as soon as possible. Because if a mass shooting doesn't fit their narrative, it must be quickly forgotten. What do you mean the shooter's not a Trump supporter? What do you mean he's not a white supremacist? Okay, let's drop it from the newscast. Incidentally, the shooter also comes from a broken family, as if that needed to be said. You show me a societal ill that doesn't stem from a broken family? Well... (laughs) Show me one. I dare you. That's why such problems are so seemingly intractable, so difficult to fix, because it requires the left, who control everything, to admit that the nuclear family is sacrosanct. It requires that society do everything possible to ensure the sanctity of the nuclear family. But the left is too busy trying to destroy the nuclear family. So that'll never happen. And we will continue to witness tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. It's not guns. It's the family. Easy to destroy the institution of the family. It's very difficult to get it back. It takes generations. So God have mercy on us all. Yesterday, Kelly Brown was here. The accidental and unofficial COVID data analyst, we were talking about the record high death totals in Ontario for the first quarter of 2022, January through March. Part of the record high death totals were over 2,000 non-COVID-19 deaths. In other words, unexplained deaths. Not all They can't be all explained by suicide or opioid overdoses or unscreened cancers and so forth. So how do we account for these deaths? So far, we can't. And then there's this story coming out of Alberta. They're reporting an unprecedented increase in ill-defined and unknown causes of death in 2021. Ill-defined and unknown causes of death? Now, when I say unprecedented, I mean these ill-defined and unknown causes of death are now Alberta's number one killer. You heard that correctly. These unknown causes, and remember what I was just mentioning about Ontario's record high total death death count in the first quarter of 2022, these unknown causes of death in Alberta now kill more Albertans than dementia, which has been the top killer in Alberta since 2016. Last year, this unknown cause of death killed 3,362 Albertans unknown and ill-defined. It's happening so frequently we've actually had to create a new acronym. SADS. Sudden Adult Death Syndrome. What could it be, I wonder? What could it be? Here's Mark Stein of GB News. Do you know the Canadian comedian Nick Nemeroff? Here he is in hospital. I will not get the
8: third shot. I will not. Pfizer me once. No shame. Pfizer me twice. Shame on COVID. Pfizer me three times. Shame on you.
9: You want me to get a third shot? What's next? A fifth shot? No, thank you. Nick Nemiroff, uh, under the weather in Montreal. Uh, we'd ask him on the
2: show, but he's dead. 32 years old. Cause of death unknown. There you go. Can- Canadian uh, comedian Nick Nemiroff. Another victim of SATS, I guess. Most curious, don't you think? All right, we have a ridiculously busy show for you today. So if you miss even five minutes, you're going to miss something important. A Canadian hero, James Top, marched across Canada to protect vax- or to protest vaccine mandates. He's now facing a court-martial. This is what happens to Canadians who oppose this power-mad government. If you don't comply, they will try to destroy you. James Top's lawyer, Philip Miller, We'll be here at Last Order of Business. Independent journalist Kian Bextie from The Counter Signal will join me live from the Netherlands. He's been covering the farmers' revolt. Uh, that's uh, hour two. 112 WestJet employees suing the airline and the government of Canada over vax mandates. Melanie Risden from The Western Standard has that story in hour two. More on the Dutch farmers' revolt with Max Keating from The Daily Caller. And today we push back against the death cult of climate change. Some great news. The U.S. Supreme Court has essentially defanged the EPA, which will likely make it impossible for the U.S. to meet its suicidal zero emissions goal, carbon zero. That could bring the whole rotten and corrupt house of cards down. Tony Heller will be here to discuss. Gropy blackface and uh, his creepy band of grifters want to regulate and censor what they deem to be, quote, misleading political communications online. That's rather chilling. Tom Korski from Blacklock's Reporter has that one. But first, a couple of months ago... Tamara Ugolini from Rebel News raised some interesting questions concerning Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Sports Doctor, Kieran Moore, and his connections to Pfizer. She's here with an update. The Richard Serrett Show, off and running for Wednesday, July 6th. Facta non verba.
4: We're back as The Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk, Saga 960 AM.
2: All right, uh, here with a very important uh, update on uh, Dr. Kieran Moore and uh, his dealings or his affiliation with Pfizer is Tamara Ugolini from Rebel News. Hey, Tamara, how are you?
7: Hi, Richard. I'm well. Thanks. How are you doing today?
2: Very well. So a few months ago, you were on the program talking about this story. You uh, um had reported, uh, our, our chief medical officer of health, Dr. T- Dr. Moore, had a conflict of interest through his work with Pfizer, the vaccine manufacturer of Pfizer. Can you explain what that connection is, what that conflict of interest is?
7: So basically what I'm trying to determine is whether or not this declared conflict of interest that he himself declares um, rather discreetly, I would say, in a previous conference before he was Chief Medical Officer of Health, in that he sits on Pfizer's advisory board for their Lyme disease North American strategy. So the Lyme disease, there's there was talks about a uh, vaccine being developed in his locale where he was previously serving as Medical Officer of Health in the kingston Lennox, uh, Frontenac area. And that, to my knowledge, did not come to fruition. However, the fact that our chief VaxPass advisor, right, it was on the advice of Kieran Moore that our government implemented vaccine mandates for working and hospitals in various sectors across the province. It was on his advice. And one of the main, obviously, COVID vaccine manufacturers is Pfizer. So how ethical is it that someone who sits on their own, the Pfizer's Pfizer's own advisory board would be giving the advice to the government to mandate these injections for an entire province. Uh, So my work has essentially evolved over the last several months. I believe I first started digging into this was in the fall of 2021, uh, perhaps even as late as December. And it's kind of snowballed ever from there on. So what I'm trying to determine now is I mean, we have the video clip that Dr. Moore has declared his own conflict of interest as an advisory board member. I don't know what that is, what it pertains to, whether there's financial incentives or financial ties, because no one's been forthcoming with any of that information, despite repeated attempts to find that information and clarify. Um, And so what I'd like to know at this point is whether or not he declared that conflict of interest to the province before he became chief medical officer of health.
2: Right. So, uh, again, Dr. Kieran Moore um, was part of this advisory board for Pfizer for their Lyme disease North American strategy. They were trying to develop uh, perhaps a vaccine to combat this scourge of of Lyme disease. He declared that when he was a panelist at the University of Toronto – uh, for some presentation, changing the way we work. So he did acknowledge that he was on the advisory panel for Pfizer, but that was when he was the local medical officer of health in Kingston. Then later he becomes Ontario's chief medical officer of health. So you're trying to determine since that time, has he made that declaration that that, that, that conflict of interest exists? Who would he declare that to? Would it have been Christine Elliott, then minister of health?
7: Right. So that's the other part of this kind of twisty turny story and unfolding of events here is that Uh, was previous, my understanding that he would have declared that to the Office of the Integrity Commission of Ontario, which is an independent review board, but as I've discovered through communication with them directly, that Kieran Moore and and any medical officer of health would actually declare their conflict of interest to their own deputy minister. So someone within the ministry itself is responsible for overseeing their own conflicts of interest. So that in itself was a a, a bit of a surprise to me that there's no independent Independent review board that oversees these conflicts and uh, yeah we know that the changeover happened now so Christine Elliott was our prior MPP elected official and the Minister of Health and now that is as of June 24th if I read it's correctly that's now Sylvia Jones so there's been a bunch of changeovers that have happened over the last two years and we know that throughout the COVID narrative but regardless if there was a declared conflict of interest on file that should be readily available and accessible to whoever the predecessors would be. So I'm not, unfortunately, I have not been able to determine by reaching out to various elected officials and these unelected bureaucrats to determine whether or not Dr. Moore has a declared conflict of interest on file. I've had to file a second access to information request that I hope to be doing an update on soon to try to try to determine whether or not, I mean, the contract details and, and details of his employment are you know, that would be nice to know, but it's mostly irrelevant here. What I really want to know is whether or not anyone has was aware that he had this this tie to Pfizer as an advisory board member before he began advising the province to mandate vaccinations by this manufacturer.
2: All right. Uh, Tamara, great, <clears throat> great work as always. Thank you for uh, bringing this update and we'll continue to watch this story uh, with great interest and, and um, we'll we'll call on you again as soon as you have more for us. Please do. Thanks for having me. Tamara Ugolini, Rebel News Journalist. All right. When we come back, the feds want to regulate and censor misleading, quote, unquote political communications online. Tom Korski, managing editor with Black Locks Reporter, is next with that one. Stay with us.
4: Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's The Richard Serra Show.
2: Pablo Rodriguez and uh, his crack team of experts on this advisory group have decided that um, political communications should be regulated and perhaps even censored. Tom Korski is the managing editor at Blacklock's Reporter. He joins me now. Hey, Tom, how are you?
1: is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
9: Glittering ornaments, fragrant wreaths, and wide-eyed wonder await you and your family this Christmas at Biltmore. Enjoy a guided tour of America's largest home,
10: filled with shimmering Christmas
9: trees and adorned in all its yuletide glory. Then make the most of your visit and imagine yourself as a holiday guest of the Vanderbilts at one of our overnight properties plan your stay at biltmore.com I will. thank you, Richard.
2: Of all the uh, discussions you and I've had on this program over the last e- year and several months, this I find perhaps the most chilling, and that's saying a lot because you have brought some amazing uh, stories our way. So, what are they up to this time? Misleading political communications they're calling they're calling this. What are, what are exactly do they mean by misleading political communications?
9: Well, whatever they want. It's it's baffling, isn't it? This is a group of 12, mainly academics, from some of the finest universities in the country. These are not guys I shoot pool with on the weekend. Academics. And, and the Ministry of Heritage put them in the room and they had a series of meetings dating from April until their most recent meeting just last month in June. And they were having discussions to come up with a framework for a censorship bill, because we know this because the minister said so. He said, I'm going to take their recommendations, we're going to write some legislation, we're going to regulate the internet. And and their advice is simply, it's just blood curdling. As you mentioned, they, they conclude that, I'm quoting from the minutes of their meeting, something must be done, and it must be done by the government. Richard, they didn't even grasp the part about free expression. What does free expression even mean? It means free from regulation by the government. That's the point. It does not regulate conversation between you and I. It says the state has no business in regulating your expression for obvious reasons. That went in this year and went out that year for these 12 academics sitting in this conference.
2: So, uh, they're look. They're talking about online political misleading political communications. That would include Facebook posts. Uh, They even include something in there about Airbnb.
9: What? what, Why is that included? Anything that is on the internet, Airbnb advertisements on Amazon. They don't like those either. YouTube, Facebook. You name it. If it's on the Internet, it has to be somehow there has to be some some government digital safety commissioner who's going to make it safe for you. It's, it's simply inexplicable. My, my, my favorite quote, they, 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 they found a problem with freedom of expression. We You know, this is <laughs> fundamental for centuries. They found a problem, though, these 12 experts. I'm quoting. They emphasize freedom of expression doesn't deal with cumulative harms or novel harms. For instance, they explained it's difficult to reconcile the issue of disinformation with the freedom of expression. Well, gee, Richard, that's too bad. So don't read it. That's not the problem. They don't want anybody to read it.
2: Well, here's the other thing I'm I'm noting in your story, Tom, and that is that this would also – this regulation and censorship would include basically private – online communications through direct messages.
9: This has been kicking around, and this even goes to legislation that's currently before committee, and you and I have talked about this uh, previously. For instance, when Cabinet introduces a bill to regulate YouTube videos as broadcast, there have been Internet advocates, and I mean retired federal judges, former chairs of the CRTC, have said, look, it's not broadcasting, it's communication. You might as well... The Internet Society Canadian chapter said this in a submission. You might as well regulate email because you're regulating communication between individuals. Other people may see it by their own free will and choice. And here you have a committee of university academics professors working at the behest of cabinet who conclude even private communication should be regulated because the government needs to keep us safe from ourselves. We're just that inadequate.
2: Oh, dear. Let me just crib from your article here, Tom, this quote. Uh, they asserted by polluting the information information environment with false deceptive or misleading information disinformation undermines this is the 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 best part disinformation undermines citizens rights to form their own informed opinions do they do they have no sense of irony here
9: it is cool. it is that is absolute gold. In other words, you, you're going to form, you're informed, you're going to be informed. <laughs> don't, d- don't, don't worry. The Department of Canadian Heritage is going to tell you the way it's going to be. And we don't want you cluttering up your, 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 your mind, your limited brain pan, with, with these contrary views and dissent that you see on the Internet. You're just upsetting people, Richard. <laughs> just, right. just if everyone would just do what they were told. So
2: misleading political communications, they will decide what is misleading, obviously, and then they will censor everything, including private online communications through direct message. That's the intent of this bill. This is the most odious, sinister thing I have ever heard coming out of this. uh, Well, I'm going to say it now while I still can. This creepy band of grifters in the federal government
9: (laughs) I, I, I say the, the mere fact that they even put this to paper, as if it was within their grasp, they concluded it was a reasonable goal that is worthy of achieving. Unbelievable, Richard.
2: All right, Tom. Thank you for keeping uh, tabs on Ottawa, minding Ottawa's business. Tom Korsky, managing editor, Blacklocks reporter. Thank you, Tom.
9: Thank you, Richard.
2: All right, Blacklocks.ca. Please support independent media, Blacklocks. Thoughts, yeah. Do you think do you think the CBC is gonna report on this? Not a chance. All right, we push back against the death cult of climate change. Tony Heller is next. Stay with us.
4: You're listening to the Richard Serrett Show on New Stock Saga, 960 a.m.
3: of climate change on The Richard Serrett Show. Hey, welcome back.
2: We have to celebrate our victories when they happen. And this is, I would have to say, this is a victory. Another great, great decision coming down from the U.S. Supreme Court. It happened last week, uh, just after the um, Tony Heller was on the program. We were anticipating the Supreme Court ruling in the uh, West Virginia versus the EPA case. It didn't come down on Wednesday, but it has since. And uh, uh, we are here to talk about it now. Tony Heller, the founder at RealClimateScience.com. RealClimateScience.com. Tony, welcome back. Yeah, it's good to be
11: here. Thanks, Richard. Okay, so again,
2: um, just explain briefly what West Virginia versus EPA was all about.
11: Well, in two thousand nine, uh, right after Obama took office, um, the, the EPA, which reports to the White House, created this endangerment finding, uh, basically saying that carbon dioxide was dangerous and they were going to regulate it under the Clean Air Act, um, which meant basically that it gave the EPA, which is is accountable to no one other than the White House, the ability to shut down entire industries like the coal industry, which essentially they did, um, for all intents and purposes. Um, so, So you have this group of regulators, you know, Unelected regulators have the ability to destroy an entire industry, which the country depends on. And so, and the Supreme Court ruled that this exceeded the the, the intentions of the Clean Air Act, and that if any sort of uh, decisions were made by this, like this moving forward, they would have to be done by the people's elected representatives in the Congress rather than unaccountable administrators. Uh, So that and that's what the Supreme Court ruled on, which is consistent with the other rulings they've made recently that, you know, these rights, which are not explicitly granted to the White House in the Constitution, uh, fall back to the states and to elected representatives.
2: Okay, so in other words, uh, and this was a six to three decision, and you can imagine which six Supreme Court justices uh, ruled uh, in this case. They they basically have ruled that the the Environmental Protection Agency does not have the uh, the authority to tell power plants, in other words, to reduce their emissions. Um, that would all now have to be if, if if the government wants to set emission standards and say we're going to reduce CO two emissions, you know, back to let's say nineteen ninety levels or whatever, the EPA wouldn't be able to do it arbitrarily. It would have to be voted on. In, uh, by the House of Representatives and the Senate.
11: Right. You know, it would have, have to be let, coming from legislation rather than these unaccountable administrators.
2: Okay, so this this
11: basically defangs,
2: I would say, the EPA, and it also removes one of the major tools that uh, the Democrats or, the, you know, the progressive left or Joe Biden has um to you know to to reduce co2 emissions in other words their goal of zero emissions by 2050 or whatever it is now that's seriously in jeopardy right they can't they can't just do it arbitrarily now
11: well yeah and and, uh, first of all i just point out the white house in the united states don't have the ability to reduce co2 emissions under any circumstances we have a global atmosphere um China is massively increasing their burning of coal. There's, There's nothing that the United States could do. The United States could disappear off the face of the Earth, and the amount of carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere is going. You know, the atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide is going to increase. So the idea that the United States or the EPA ever had the ability to control the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is farcical because we're a minor component of the global budget. So nothing about this story ever made any sense. It's just crazy virtue signaling by people who don't have any sense of what's going on with science and understand any sense of what's going on with, in the world as a whole.
2: Right. So um, does this mean now that, so for example, West Virginia – um, that launched this this action in the Supreme Court against the EPA. West Virginia could now, if they want, open up as many coal mines or coal—sorry, coal burning uh, plants—as they want to produce electricity, and then other states could could follow suit. Well,
11: I, you know, we'll have to see moving forward. I mean, the Democrats are going to put up any sort of impediments they can. And of course, there's judges involved. People just sue and, you know, the left-wing judges will delay and make it very difficult to do anything, which is like they do with everything else. So the actual implementation will really be totally interesting. But, but one thing that's interesting is um, where I live in Wyoming, we're the number one coal-producing state. And um, California is shutting down their nuclear power plant. They shut down all their coal-fired power plants. And California has apparently secretly made a deal with Wyoming to generate their electricity uh, moving forward. Because California's government knows that they don't have enough electricity to supply their state. So apparently sometime after the year 2025, it's going to be revealed to the public in California that they're actually running off of coal-fired electricity from Wyoming. So the whole thing, <laughs> That's so rich. It all things a farce, and, but the, the state is keeping this secret from um, – their voters until um, three more years
2: from that. all right Tony we've got to take a quick time out we'll come back we'll continue to discuss this case also George Soros' reaction uh, to this Supreme Court ruling and others Tony Heller uh, is with us the founder of realclimatescience.com as we push back against the cult of climate change don't go away
4: back to the conversation on the Richard Sarrant Show News Talk Saga 960 AM Tony Heller stays with us as we
2: push back against the cult of climate change, and the Supreme Court in the United States has uh, dealt a, um, a serious blow to the cult of climate change. They've basically ruled that the EPA can't arbitrarily dictate um, limits to carbon dioxide emissions. They can't tell... West Virginia, for example, to shut down their coal-generating power plants, uh, because this is administrative uh, overreach. And they're really, the Supreme Court, uh, that is, they're really uh, now um, trying to limit, or these these rulings are limiting the, the power of the executive branch, which has just expanded by leaps and bounds, really, since well probably the the second world war or or, or even before um, George Soros not surprisingly not happy about this not not happy with um, many of the recent rulings by the uh, the Supreme Court and uh you've you've uh, written about this recently at realclimatescience.com, dot com Tony tell me more
11: well yeah well George Soros has worked hard to undermine. Democracy all over Western countries, and replace it with mob rule. You know, he's, he's funded lots of violence groups, who so very vocal groups who, and they come in and and screaming and hollering and disrupted the rights of, of everybody else, and um, put in place you know the, the left wing ideals. Um, so he's very upset about recent Supreme Court rulings which have restored the constitutional rights of the voters. The Supreme Court's made several rulings recently saying that things which had been executive orders or Supreme Court decisions or stuff like the EPA ruling um, were overreach and that these sort of um, decisions needed to be made by voters and their elected representatives. So So he's very upset about these Supreme Court decisions he says that the Supreme Court is undermining democracy by returning power to the voters which is absurd it's the exact opposite of reality what the Supreme Court's doing is saying that the voters and their elected representatives have the right to control their own lives rather than unelected people in the judiciary or in the um, um in agencies like the EPA. So it's pretty it was pretty amazing editorial that Soros put out on July fourth where everything was the exact opposite of reality. And he's obviously very angry that the Supreme Court has been undermining his hard work to destroy Western civilization.
2: George Soros says democracy is far right extremism. Uh that's that's not dissimilar to what's happening up here in Canada, where now freedom of speech is considered, or or um, uh, freedom in general, is considered far right extremism. Tony Heller, founder at realclimatescience.com. Just have a couple minutes, Tony. I just wanted to, uh, to run this by you. I found this an interesting headline Tropical cyclones have decreased alongside human caused global warming. So here we have the global warming bedwetters admitting that tropical cyclones have decreased uh, alongside what they call human-caused global warming, except for years they've been telling us that global warming was causing more, uh, more erratic weather, more extreme weather. Now they're admitting that tropical cyclones are decreasing. What's going on here?
11: Well, after the um Katrina, Hurricane Katrina in 2005, they were all screaming, this is the new normal. We're going to be having these terrible storms every year, and they're going to get worse and worse because of global warming, and we're going to have hurricanes with 230-mile-per-hour winds. And then after Hurricane Sandy in 2012, we heard the same thing. So they are predicting we were getting an increase in hurricanes, and instead we've seen a decrease. In either case, they blame it on global warming hurricanes had increased, they would have come up with an excuse for blaming it on global warming, and now that hurricanes have decreased, they're doing the same thing. So kind of heads I tail, you know, heads I win, tails you lose, right? No matter what the outcome is, they're going to come up with a reason to blame it on global warming. It's just the usual junk science and inability to deal with reality that we see from the left about all topics.
2: Right. And then finally, this other story, um, you know, we've been talking about this, this supposed, uh, you know, this pause in temperature rises, uh, that the global warming community was kind of, you know, they were confounded by it. How do we explain the fact that the temperature wasn't rising for a period of, I don't know, 18 or 20 years? They called it the Great Pause. Now they're saying that, uh, according to a fact check, uh, that, that there, this, uh, this, this, um, this, this pause never actually happened.
11: Yeah, you know, they they're can control of the statistics. They just make numbers up as they go along. The North Pole is having its coldest summer on record last, right now. Last winter was the coldest winter on record in Antarctica. Greenland is gaining ice. Everything about their stories is falling apart. So they just what they do is they just redirect, you know, for a long time it was polar bears are dying, the Arctic is melting. That's not happening, so they just switch from one scan to another and drop the previous one, come up with fake statistics, create lots of hysterics, and they never get called out on it, except by, you know, people like me, so they'll do it as long as they feel like they can get away with it.
2: All right, Tony, great work as always. And uh, I'm in a celebratory mood now with the uh, the, the, the SCOTUS decision defanging the EPA. Uh, and you should uh, put your feet up and, uh, I don't know, have a glass of beer or a glass of champagne to celebrate. This is good news. Tony, thank you so much as always.
1: Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
2: Yeah, thank you, Richard. Tony Heller, RealClimateScience.com. All right, hour two, straight ahead. Lots of great programming coming your way, including Philip Miller. He's the uh, attorney for James Top, and uh, he'll uh, discuss how uh, James Topp is now facing a court martial. Or criticizing the uh, vaccine mandates and uh, marching to Ottawa. We'll also speak with Kian Bexley live from the Netherlands. Kian Bexley from the Counter Signal about the farmers' revolt over there. Max Keating from the Daily Caller will also be here to talk about uh, what's going on in the Netherlands. And Melanie Risden. From uh, the Western Standard, we'll talk about the WestJet employees that are suing the airline and the federal government over vaccine mandates. Hour two, straight ahead. Don't go away. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption this is the richard serrett show
3: i want all of you to get up out of your chairs i want you to get up right now and go to the window
4: open it and stick your head out and yell i'm as bad as hell and i'm not gonna
5: Only to win the battle, but to win the war.
4: Not we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes, if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of
6: what
2: man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. You're out of order. You're out of order. The whole trial is out of order. You have meddled with
4: the primal forces of nature, and you.
2: Welcome to Hour 2. If you missed Hour 1, you missed a lot, but don't despair. Still plenty of great programming coming your way, including the uh, lawyer for James Top, Of course, the Canadian Armed Forces veteran who marched across Canada from Vancouver to Ottawa. And uh, in protest of the vaccine mandates, he's now facing a court-martial. Philip Millar is uh, his lawyer. He'll be here to discuss. Kian Bexty will join us live from the Netherlands, from the counter signal, talking about the farmers revolt in the Netherlands. And uh, also we'll uh, talk about the 112 WestJet employees who are suing the airline, as well as the federal government over vaccine mandates. Melanie Risden uh, will be here. First, uh, back to the... Uh, Dutch farmers who are using their tractors and bales of hay and other farm implement to block roads and supermarket distribution networks to protest their government's mandated emissions reductions that is threatening their future, their livelihoods. Here to discuss is Max Keating, a contributor with The Daily Caller. Hey, Max, how are you?
5: Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing just fine.
2: Uh, So can you... Explain what it is the, the government in the Netherlands is is attempting to do with these mandates.
5: Sure thing. So essentially, this traces back to uh, a 2019 court ruling that uh, said that uh, the Netherlands would have to drastically reduce emissions targets. And the government last, uh, you know, this winter um, put into play new emissions reductions targets for farmers, uh, notably on nitrogen oxide and ammonia, which are both uh, produced in livestock uh, farming. Now, um, the, the, the reductions uh, targets are relatively draconian, um, which and would lead to like 30 percent of all farmers uh, losing their jobs just by the, the government's own figures.
2: 30 percent of farmers in the Netherlands would be forced out of business.
5: Yeah, exactly. And, and and in some areas it's even more concentrated, right? So next to nature preserves, I think uh, the, the the standards are even higher. And so you see a lot of a lot of economic pain and privation concentrated in certain areas. And that's where these hotbeds are, where you're seeing the trucker, the, the, truck, the Protests. I almost said trucker protests because it is so reminiscent of the Canadian trucker protests. But
2: right. Right. Uh, With have they been were they inspired by the uh, the trucker convoy uh, protest to do this or was this going to happen regardless? So
5: I've just been uh, that's on my agenda to to get in touch with some of the people participating. I just got on top of this story last night. I broke a piece um, and haven't actually spoken to anybody on the ground protesting. So I don't know. But I would imagine so just because of the virality of that and how everybody, you know, saw that around the world.
2: So how many farmers uh, are out in the street? Well, farmers and their supporters, I guess, because we know fishermen are also participating uh, in this. But, but how many uh, people are out in the streets protesting?
5: By the figures floating around um, are that about 40,000 farmers have, have mobilized uh, as part of this.
2: And uh, so they're they're blocking food depots uh, as this uh, protest sort of trickled down to the uh, the store shelves, for example, the grocery stores. Are they starting to, to run into shortages now?
5: It, it has indeed. Um, and, you know, there's some viral content going around on, on Twitter of, of supermarket shelves, especially uh, in, you know, the, the butcher department uh, being just bare empty um and you know this comes at a concerning time right when when the russian invasion of ukraine the breadbasket of europe has already kind of uh put strain on on international food prices and um you know if this is a sustained protest uh the netherlands is the number one uh exporter of meat from the eu um and so and so this is no small market we're talking uh
2: so right and um do they have the support of the people? What do we know? What the mood is the the, the Dutch uh, citizens? Are they the, are they generally supportive of the farmers? Are they upset with the farmers?
5: Yeah, you know it's, it's hard to gauge. I think a good point is is the one you brought brought up: uh, fishermen who are not really uh, affected by the the emissions reductions. They're out um, in solidarity with the farmers. They've blocked a number of ports and. Harbors. Um, so so that's kind of a gauge that perhaps there is some some popular support for this. Um, but beyond that, it's, it's kind of hard to to tell for me.
2: And uh, unlike in Canada, where the federal government was unwilling to to communicate with the truckers to to, you know, to have a to let them, you know, raise their concerns with them. Uh, my understanding is the Dutch government has actually appointed someone, I guess, to kind of liaison with the farmers. How is that going?
5: Yes, that's accurate. There were meetings uh, over the weekend on a sort of smaller note, um, just regionally. Uh, but the Dutch government did sort of appoint Johan Remkes to lead talks uh, between farmers and the government officials. So, And he's respected, by the way, by farm lobby and whatnot as sort of a, a down-the-middle um, mediator. But that being said, last night, uh, since I published my story, um, police have fired into a crowd of... of, of uh, of some of these farmers. And so um, while there does seem to be some willingness to communicate and work with the farmers, at the same time, uh, there has been some level of heavy handedness.
2: Right. Uh, there was a 16 year old, I think, who narrowly avoided uh, being shot. Uh, and then that 16 year old was later arrested. Um, what is your sense, uh, Max, is is this um, going to continue for the foreseeable future of this protest? Is there any sign that the farmers are, are going to back down? And, and uh, I mean, how much more, uh, I guess, you know, pain, food, disruption to the food supply are, are we going to see in Holland?
5: Yeah, this, it's a good question. Um, and again, it kind of remains to be seen. I would say that um, this has been going on in, in sort of escalating form for about uh, two weeks now, a little more, a little less. Uh, and it doesn't show any signs of stopping. Rather, it's gathering steam. Um, one could hope that, that the, the Dutch government would work with them. Like we were saying a moment ago, there, there have been some talks. And perhaps if there are concessions, uh, the farmers might stand down and, and meet in some middle ground where less of them lose jobs and restrictions are less uh, severe.
2: All right. Well, all eyes are on the Netherlands right now. This is a developing story with uh, potentially huge implications. Uh, Max Keating, contributor with The Daily Caller, dailycaller.com. Max, thank you so much. Hope we'll talk again.
5: Thank you. Take care.
2: All right. Uh, I was mentioning yesterday about the um, cult of climate change and how they will stoop to the lowest levels to try and push this hoax, man-made global warming. I have heard them try and connect global warming with terrorism. In other words, they're blaming terrorism on climate change. Uh, they have tried to blame. Uh, well, let me give a perfect example. This is the um, Minister of Foreign Affairs in Australia trying to link
1: is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
10: Climate change and sexual abuse. Have a listen. As we confront the climate crisis, women and girls' human rights must be at the center of our collective efforts. Climate change and its consequences can exacerbate the risk of sexual and gender-based violence. This risk is most acute for women and girls facing multiple and intersecting forms of discrimination and inequality, including Indigenous women and girls. Australia is committed to achieving gender equality and eliminating sexual and gender-based violence, including during emergencies. Australia is providing funding to train disaster responders to identify and support women and girls experiencing family and domestic violence during and after natural disasters. We stand with Pacific women and girls in responding to the climate crisis, including by providing negotiator training to support women delegates from Pacific Island countries to represent their countries in international climate change meetings. Women and girls, in all their diversity, must be able to live their lives free of violence. Realising women's and girls' human rights is an important part of securing the future of our planet and a better future for us all.
2: Climate change leads to intersecting, I can't even what did she say? It just It's complete gibberish. Complete and utter nonsense. It would be laughable under normal circumstances, except, obviously, sexual abuse, abuse of women is a real problem. It's a scourge in society. But trying to connect that, to link that with the hoax of man-made climate change... It's just stooping to a whole new level. All right. Uh, When we come back, 112 WestJet employees are suing the airline plus the federal government. Good for them. Melanie Ridston is next from the Western Standard. Stay with us.
4: Welcome back to the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. All right. About
2: 100 WestJet employees are suing the airline and the federal government over the mandatory vaccine policies that were forced on their industry and others. Melanie Ridston is an Alberta reporter for the Western Standard and Alberta Report. She's based in Calgary, and she joins us now. Melanie, welcome. How are you?
0: Uh, Very well, thank you. Uh, Very busy here, for sure. How are you? uh
2: Very well. Yeah. Lots going on. It's like drinking from a fire hose, as they say. (laughs) Uh, So these um, 100 WestJet staffers, are they currently on unpaid leave uh, or are they what's happening with them?
0: Well, it looks like it's a mixture of them. Uh, some of them are on unpaid leave. Some of them have actually been uh, terminated and are no longer with the company. And my understanding is that there are some that are still employed, employed and, uh, and possibly have returned to work. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, uh, it sounds like there's a mixture of them. And it is now up to 112 uh, WestJet employees
2: And are they are they suing for damages from WestJet? What what are they seeking?
0: Uh, Yes, there will be uh, damages sought by the sounds of things. Uh, And and I think uh, really this is uh, in an effort to make sure that these mandates and the, you know, the forced vaccination policies won't ever happen again. So, um, you know, it's 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 a it's a challenge to their chartered rights. Uh, And so, yes, I I imagine that it's sort of that uh, that two uh, two sided coin there.
2: Now it's interesting because uh, the CEO of WestJet, if I'm not mistaken, was one of the few uh, Canadian airline execs who actually spoke out and said, "You know, we got to get rid of these mandates at the airports because it's just creating chaos." And mm-hmm. yet his own company is facing um, a, a lawsuit from from uh, the employees there that were subjected to this same vaccine mandate. Uh, does yeah, he, is he irony deficient? I don't know what's going on there.
0: Yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, concept, right? Uh, and and one that I actually covered a few days ago or about a week ago when um, when that uh, particular CEO made some some posts on Twitter about the fact that it is now time to uh, do away with these mandates and how much it is affecting the travel industry. Uh, and you know, speaking with Leighton Gray, which is the lawyer that is uh, is acting on behalf of these 112 WestJet employees, speaking to him, he says that, um, you know, they recognize these employees recognize this mandate was not put in place by WestJet per se. Right. This was a a federally um, federally launched uh, mandate. However, uh, these corporations can and should be doing more to push back against the federal government, and uh, especially when you have CEOs taking these stances. Now, when I covered that story a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, I kind of looked into the history of that, and WestJet has sort of been um, active in pushing back against uh some of the some of the um other uh mandates that were put in place you know the the testing uh and whatnot uh this was the first time actually um just a couple of weeks ago that the ceo had made a a, a public stance against the actual vaccine passports uh and As far as the lawyers concerned, they need to be doing more that even if they are making some headway behind the scenes, they need to be doing this more publicly and making this uh, this sort of fight or stance in the public sphere uh, and in the court of public opinion.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, You mentioned uh, Leighton Gray the civil liberties lawyer who's representing these workers and uh, he's also representing other clients in a, that are sort of having a similar situation with their employer over the vaccine mm-hmm. mandates CN Rail and CP and um you write about how some of these employees have chosen to go back Uh, to work after the mandates ended and but they're facing some discrimination and even some reprisals from from fellow workers.
0: Yeah, that's uh, sort of what was explained to me by Mr. Gray as well. He has clients that are feeling still very heavily discriminated against uh, as they return to work uh, for their choice to remain unvaccinated or not. Disclose their vaccine status. Uh, he says that uh, some of them are feeling very sort of socially and emotionally disconnected from their workplace now. So, so he says he has many clients, and and he has uh, with the amount of uh, of large cases he is working on, he has hundreds, if not thousands, of clients. Many of them have regretted uh, making that return to work. So, uh, and and he's really advising those clients that he's working with, especially with WestJet and. And others to not go back. He called it a prelude, prelude to a kiss. Uh, Don't go back. Uh, You, you know, you will face these things and it is not going to further that, that uh, hopefully that fight that's going to prevent this from happening again.
2: Any idea when the uh, WestJet uh, case will have its day in court?
0: Well, these things, unfortunately, take a long time uh, to to move through the courts. uh, And and, you know, uh, we I think a lot of these court cases are hinged on other cases that are before the courts right now. I know in uh, Alberta specifically, there is a court case uh, that uh, Mr. Gray is also um, he's also participating in and he is uh, has been sort of commissioned by the Justice Centre for Constitutional uh, freedoms. And uh, that is against the Alberta government for uh, the um, chief medical officer of health orders uh, and the restrictions that came down in the province. So, um, you know, I think once those kinds of cases start to see uh, see their day and, and have these rulings or judgments, I think it's going to, and from what I'm hearing from many lawyers, it's going to sort of be this dominant effect uh, that is going to sort of ripple through all of these other cases uh, and uh, it, it will be widespread.
2: All right. Well, we'll watch with interest. And I wish uh, uh, Leighton Gray and his clients great success. Melanie Risden with the Western Standard. Thank you so much, Melanie. Great to meet you. My pleasure. All right. When we come back, we'll go live to the Netherlands. Ken Bexley from the Counter Signal will give us a, a view on the ground of the farmers revolt in the Netherlands. Stay with us.
4: The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. All right, welcome back. All eyes are on Netherlands, where a massive
2: farmers' revolt continues in uh, protest of the uh, Dutch government's new emissions uh, mandate. They're basically trying to force about 30%, 30% of the Netherlands farmers out of business in their suicide plan for, all uh, well, their rush to part of the uh, UN sustainable agenda and um, reducing uh, CO2 emissions and, and uh, ammonia emissions and so forth. And Kian Bexty is on the ground in the Netherlands. He joins us, uh, the uh, founder of The Counter Signal, the countersignal.com is the website. Kian, welcome back. How are you?
1: is running out this message is paid for by lines for fair and equitable policy
2: good how are you can you hear me all right i can yes whereabouts in the netherlands are you at this moment
8: i'm currently at a mcdonald's in frieslands which is in the northern side of uh the country
2: all right and uh kind of paint us a picture what do you see as you look out the window at the mcdonald's what's happening there
8: I am seeing a lot of fires actually. The protesters here have started burning bales in protest of the government's recent actions. Uh, in particular tonight, they were angry about a young protester, a 16-year-old, who was placed under arrest after shots were fired at him last night as he tried to leave the protest. Um, the, the government here has done nothing but inflame the tensions, and the protesters are responding quite angrily.
2: So are these like uh, paramilitary uh, style police or are they regular uniform police? Who are these people that are firing live ammunition at farmers?
6: Yeah, they are. uh, uh, They are uh, the federal police force here,
8: um, sort of like our RCMP. So military. It's a very subjective term, right? like what what defines that? They certainly have assault rifles uh, in this case, it was actually um, a handgun that was uh, delivering the bullets to this young man's tractor. but uh, they the police are angry, protesters are angry, and uh, the government isn't doing anything to help
2: any any serious injuries thus far?
8: Uh, That individual, uh, the reports that we got from uh, protesters who were on the scene, the
6: bullets missed that 16-year-old boy by two centimeters. Um, Outside of that specific instance, um, I couldn't tell you about any injuries. There certainly has been a lot of arrests, a lot of fighting, um, a lot of... um, Unnecessary violence between police officers and protesters. Uh, so it's, it's definitely interesting to watch.
2: And what are the numbers like? We're hearing, uh, you know, upwards of forty thousand farmers and their supporters uh, taking taking part in this protest. What kind of numbers are you
9: hearing? Uh,
6: well, uh, I'm hearing similar to that. I'm I'm seeing uh, huge amounts and not just uh, at any one protest. So it's really hard to gauge these numbers. Um, I've driven up and down the country from uh, South Holland to Friesland, uh, which, you know, uh, it takes about three hours to traverse the whole country. Car. And there's small protests of about 200 to 300 people every, you know, 20 kilometers, uh, and that's just where I've been so far. It's it's massive numbers. I uh, it's proportional to what Canada saw during the Freedom Convoy. Uh, it's it's a lot of people. A lot of people are upset, but it's because. Uh, This is going to affect a lot of people. These nitrogen reductions, uh, they call it uh, pollution reductions, but really that's just a way to enchant uh, urban liberals. What it means is they're going to be reducing the agricultural output of this country, meaning tens of thousands of farmers are going to be put out of work between now and 2030. Um, so you know, it's going to have such a dramatic effect on such a big industry in this country. It's akin to shutting down the oil sands in Canada, or akin to shutting down banning farming in Canada as well. Right. Outrage a lot of.
2: And what kind of support? I mean, are the are the average uh, Dutch citizens? Are they in support of this? People that you've talked to, are they annoyed by it? Where do they fall?
6: Divide, of course, but uh, you know, just judging by you know, as you drive down the road, you see these red handkerchiefs tied to the backs of trucks and cars, and that's sort of a signal. It's a it's a symbol of the protest here in Canada. uh, uh, Sorry, here in the Netherlands, that they're supportive of the farmers. Uh, and I would say, you know, one in every five or six vehicles has one of those, uh, at least in their rural parts. So, it's, it's, you know, it's hard to say what the city of Amsterdam thinks or the Hague. Uh, but definitely in rural
2: Netherlands, there's overwhelming support for the farmers. People like to eat after all. <laughs> go figure. Uh, Kian Bexty is with The Counter Signal, thecountersignal.com. We'll take a quick time out. He's joining us uh, live from the Netherlands where the farmers' revolt is taking place. More of our conversation right after these. Don't go away.
4: Just having a little chin wag on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga 9:60 a.m.
2: Journalist Kian Bextie with The Counter Signal is with us, and he's reporting live from the Netherlands on this uh, farmer's revolt. And uh, he set up a website if you want to follow his coverage. It's dutchuprising.com, dutchuprising.com. Uh, Kian, when you approach... Um, uh farmers taking uh, part in this and um, you know they realize that you're from Canada. Do they talk about whether they were maybe inspired by the the, uh, the freedom convoy, the trucker uh, protest up here?
8: Great question. Uh, and one of the, the first questions that I wanted to ask people when I came here. And the answer is, yeah, uh, they, all, they were all watching what happened in Canada. Uh, they saw the truckers, uh, and everyone else rise up and support them because, uh, they were being treated unfairly. The government told the truckers, no, you can't work because of their, you know, vaccine status. Um, and that's effectively what the government is telling these, uh, uh, these folks in the Netherlands. You can't work because uh, you pollute too much. Uh, and, and this is what everyone suspected. Uh, as we reached the midpoint of the pandemic, everyone thought, you know, if right now it's pandemic lockdowns. Soon it's going to be climate lockdowns. And that's effectively what this is. They're saying because of, you know, be, because we want to satisfy the 2030 agenda, the World Economic Forum agenda, or because we want to satisfy urban liberals we're going to put you out of a job Uh, and that's exactly what's going to happen here Uh, tens of thousands of farmers are going to be out of a job by 2030 if this government uh, is unchallenged by that time Uh, so it's pretty pretty stark stuff but very similar to what happened in Canada and, and the farmers here recognize that
2: have you been into any grocery stores and are you noticing any empty shelves
8: I have not personally been into any grocery stores I will be soon um, that's, that's one of the stops I've uh, been, uh, just sort of sitting and uh, standing with protesters on the front lines, watching what they're doing, listening to what they're having to say. But, uh, I can tell you that the pictures that I've seen are probably similar to the ones that you've seen, uh, empty shelves, especially in places that were hard hit by, uh, the blockades of the distribution centers. Some people were wondering, well, why are farmers stopping people from being able to eat, Uh, Why are they blocking distribution centers from sending out the food that they're producing? And the answer is because that's what's going to happen in 2030. If the food doesn't get produced and there's global food shortage because of this, uh, it's going to be a lot harder to solve. It's pretty easy to reverse a blockade. But this, if you forgive the pun, is just a taste of what uh, that starvation is going to be like uh, luckily, the blockades have all been lifted, and I think they've sent their message. Uh, they've been blockading other things recently, like police stations and um, other government buildings, and, and less so focused on the food chain. Uh,
2: unlike the uh, the Canadian government, who are unwilling to speak with the truckers, uh, at least the, the government in Holland, in the Netherlands rather, um, has dispatched someone, I guess, to kind of liaison with the farmers. Uh, can you mm-hmm. tell how is that going?
8: Yeah, there is a mediator that they're dealing with. Uh, obviously, you know, the farmers aren't... Nobody's ever happy with a mediator. Um, and it, the government sort of uses that as a way to hopefully turn down the heat on these things, uh, on this protest. Farmers, you know, they're not happy. And this is a result of their their system, uh, their, their, their government uh, system here. There's a lot of um, very right-wing uh, politicians, representatives here, in this country because of their, uh, their popular way of electing people. Uh, unlike in Canada where you know you have two or maybe two and a half parties that call all the shots and uh, usually are in line with each other, lots of politicians uh, are sympathetic of these, these farmers here and have a lot of control over committee and government action. So uh, there's some progress there, but you know it's a mediator. It's not them actually coming to the table in good faith. I don't think uh, that's certainly what the farmers are saying that it's not good faith negotiations because the government is going to do what the government wants to do at the end of the day.
2: Is there like a a, a leader, a leadership uh, behind this 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 protest, or is it just kind of organic? Uh,
8: it's. it's Extremely decentralized. Um, it's operating. I, I, I saw similar protests when I was covering the protests in Hong Kong. Um, they are there's no one leader. Uh, there's Telegram groups, several of them, that dispatch protesters to different locations as problems arise. Um, it's you know there, there's some leaders that are that are that started this protest that are speaking with the mediators but by and large each small protest on the side of the road is organized by a small family farm and their friends um it's it's very grassroots the way that this is operating
2: and uh, are they committed to the long term are they determined they're gonna they're gonna be out on the street uh, protesting mm-hmm. uh, as long as it takes or what's the agenda
8: yeah, that's what I was wondering when I came here, because uh, I, I just missed the one big day that they had uh, on July 4th. They were calling it their Independence Day. Um, and I was wondering, is it going to die down? And everyone that I've spoke to, they say, would you give up if your livelihood was on the line uh, after a couple days of protesting? It, it, the answer that I'm getting is that they're going to go... For the long haul, just like people were surprised by how long the truckers stayed in Ottawa, uh, people are going to be surprised how long these farmers are outraged. Uh, you know, their lives are quite literally on the line. Uh, I was speaking with one protester outside of a police station today who was uh, protesting the arrest of that 16-year-old boy, and he was telling me about a crisis that's going underreported here in the Netherlands. They equally despise the mainstream media here, saying that a huge amount of farmers are actually committing suicide as a result. Of this, uh, the, this government action—the government action of expropriating farmers' land and uh, stopping them from doing their, the business that their families have been doing for generations—it's uh, tragic to see government uh, policy re, uh, end up with that kind of consequence. Uh, so, when when the consequences are that severe, people's lives are on the line, but they're going to be protesting as long as it takes. I think.
2: Well, my uh, my prayers and best wishes go with the farmers. And, um, uh, Kian, you be safe. And again, the website, dutchuprising.com, dutchuprising.com. Kian Bexty with the Counter Signal. Great job. Thanks for spending some time with us, Kian. No worries. Thanks for having me, Richard. All right. When we come back, Philip Miller, the lawyer for James Top, who is facing a court-martial. That story's next. Stay with us.
4: Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Welcome back.
2: Warrant officer James Topp, of course, we're familiar with his incredible story, his incredible journey. He marched from Vancouver to Ottawa to uh, protest the uh, federal government's COVID-19 vaccine requirements. He was critical of the, uh, the vaccine mandates. He was critical while in uniform. And now, Warrant Officer James Taub is facing a court-martial. Joining us on the line is his attorney, Philip Miller, who is a former combat officer and a a trial lawyer, former prosecutor. Philip, welcome to the program. How are you?
3: I'm
11: very good, sir. Thank you for having me.
3: So, as
2: a former combat officer, um... This, uh, my, my understanding is this is not your only uh, uh, client in, in this regard, James Topp. You are representing other um, armed forces uh, members who are facing similar plight. Is that is that uh, correct?
3: Yeah, I've got about uh, 30 military members who are being uh, fast-tracked out of the military because they uh, – Didn't want to get the vaccine. Either they said they already had COVID or uh, most of them claimed uh, religious ground. Warrant Officer James Topp, his his case is uh, special to me because he actually served in the same infantry unit I did in Petawawa, uh, 3rd RCR, 3rd Battalion Royal Canadian Regiment. And he was just a very well-respected, calm, kind person who served many tours overseas. And then at his reserve unit out in British Columbia, they decided that they were going to say you have to get the vaccine and we'll kick you out. And so, you know, I, I feel really privileged to be able to help out here. When
2: when we when most of us who are not military, when we hear the word court martial, we we kind of well for me, I kind of recoil and I say, oh, that's not good. But uh, is a a court martial is uh, is facing a court martial is that preferable than let's say having his case heard by uh, his higher-ups in his unit?
3: Well, it depends on the circumstance. When the when the Chief of Defense Staff issues a directive that says, you will get vaccinated or we will kick you out of the Army, regardless of circumstance, which is essentially what's happening. Um, think about it. If your commanding officer is going to do the trial, do you think that he's going to find against the Chief of Defense Staff's directive? Right? So the summary trial system that they had been offering him was essentially just uh, a phrase we had used in the military, where we say "march in the guilty bastard," right? Mm. And you take your lumps, and uh, and you're just thankful that you're able to kind of learn from your mistake. The case of Warren Top is, you know, he he's questioning a policy in which it seems very politically motivated. Uh, where we're using military members as public policy pawns. The the director from the chief of defense staff said, we want the military to set the example, so we're going to insist they all take it, or we'll punish them if they don't. And I just take that personally, that they're using our service members as pawns of policy under the umbrella of saying, oh, this is for operational effectiveness, which is nonsense, because this man just walked across Canada. He's clearly healthy. You know, he had it, like, so I want to expose uh, the BS behind what the government is doing. And essentially they're sacrificing the careers of very good Canadians who served us and they're kicking them out. Some of them are full time. Like they got to get up and move out of cold lake, find a new place for their kids to go to school. And it, it's offensive to me. And that's why I, that's why I like this cause.
2: So uh, how does a court martial uh Hearing work exactly. I mean, w- will you be sitting beside him um, in 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 the proceedings?
3: Yeah, let me give you a, a court martial is essentially a trial, right? Where you can elect a trial by a jury, so you can have a jury of your peers, or a judge alone, just like in the normal prosecutorial world. But it's not your chain of command. The people who get promoted based on if the chief chief of defense staff like them. So. When he was first notified that this charge was going to happen, they gave him the right to elect by court-martial, and he elected because he wants a judge or a jury to adjudicate this, not somebody who is beholden to the chief of defense staff. When we selected that he would, he wants to have a court-martial so we can call some ex- experts, so we can make this you know, a wholesome thing, they said, no, we don't want you to do that. They pulled the charges and relayed charges saying, uh, you don't have a right to a court-martial. And which was, I thought, unfair, because that meant he's just going to be convicted regardless. And then all of a sudden, in the last week or so, they they said, well, wait a second, we're going to let you do a court march. And uh, why, we don't know for sure. Is it because he was getting more publicity, or is it because I think they were asking him to come back while he was walking? He's like, well, I'm going to finish my walk before I go stand in front of the CEO, but to me, it's a little suspect, but we welcome the opportunity to, ha- to shed some sunlight on this issue in a court-martial, which will be open to the public.
2: Ah, okay. So in a, in a sense, although you know the consequences could be uh, serious, uh, it, it's, um, it may be a positive development. He's getting his day in court, as we say. Uh, what are the potential consequences uh, if, if he's found guilty, if that's the right word?
3: So if you would have uh, proceeded by way of summary trial under his chain of command, generally you're looking at a fine, a reduction in rank, probably from warrant officer to sergeant. <laughs> you know, the powers of punishment were limited. Uh, a court-martial the powers of punishment are expanded, but I do think that we'll be able to make a case to say, hey, this is a good, a good man, a good soldier, a good Canadian, who took issue with the government saying, inject yourself with something because we want you to be an arm of public policy. Like when we deploy on missions, uh, let's say we have to go to Africa, we have to get some vaccines. If we're going to go deploy into an area where there's uh, malaria, Ebola. But if you don't deploy there, the government doesn't kick you out. It just says, OK, you stay back in rear party. Like it, there, there's a way to accommodate its soldiers who don't necessarily believe that it's the right thing to do. Trudeau government in this case through the CDS has just said, you do what we say or we will hammer you. And that's why we want to take this to a court-martial and show that that policy was misguided and that he was standing up for the rights of of Canadian Forces soldiers and Canadian Forces citizens.
2: Philip Miller is the lawyer for Warrant Officer James Topp, who's uh, facing court-martial. Philip, uh, Godspeed, all the best of luck, and uh, thank you so much for spending some time with us.
3: Yeah, thank you for putting, uh, putting some attention on this topic.
2: All right. That's it for me. My thanks to Jody and Declan. I'll be back tomorrow at 4 to do it all over again, God willing. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken.